Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smeza de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. Hello, everyone. Happy Women's History Month and welcome to the Paseo Podcast at Paseo Podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. If you want to keep up with us, if you want to follow me, I'm at JS DeLeon on Twitter. You can also pitch a story or volunteer with the podcast by reaching out to us on our website, PaseoMedia.org. To watch the interview portions of our episodes, check us out on YouTube. Just type in Paseo Podcast and we'll pop right up. And while you're there, like our videos and subscribe to our channel. I know many of you have already been doing that. So much love. Appreciate y'all. Thank you for the good vibes and the support. Um, but if you haven't liked our channel, if you haven't subscribed, you know, help us get to 100 subscribers, y'all. Por favor, we could, we could really use it, especially since once we get to 100, we could actually put together a little custom URL. So a little inside baseball there. Um, for this week's episode, we're making history by welcoming our first Misericon guest to the show, Daniela Velasquez, joins us today. She is the Senior Manager of Public Relations at Elasticity, a St. Louis-based digital marketing and advertising firm. She also sits on the leadership board of Voz KC, which is a Missouri-based PAC focused on building the power of Latinas across the state. She has a wealth of experience in the communications field. In fact, before working for an agency, she actually worked for the ACLU of Missouri as their director of communications and is a former journalist and reporter covering news down in Florida. In today's discussion, we're going to talk about her life growing up Puerto Rican in Missouri, her work in public relations, and a whole lot more. But first, let's jump into some news. As I stated at the top of the show, this week is the start of Women's History Month, so what better way to start off every episode this month than by highlighting an amazing Boricua that shows just how badass and fearless Puerto Rican women are. For today's episode, I'd like to highlight Felicitas Mendez. She was a civil rights activist and pioneer in the desegregation of United States public schools. Um, so I ended up going back into that archive, picked up picked up some notes um, on her background, who she was, in case you're hearing her name for the first time. Here's what you need to know about Felicitas Mendez. Born Felicita Gomez Martinez, she was born in Juncos, Puerto Rico, on February 5th in 1916. At a young age, she relocated to the United States with her family to Orange County, California. She and her family made a living as agricultural workers alongside many other Latina families. She would later go on to open a cantina with her Mexican husband, Gonzalo Mendez, whom she married in 1935. The couple would later settle down in the small town of Westminster, California, where they bought a farm. It was here that her fight to desegregate public schools in the United States began, as she sued the Westminster School District after her three children were refused enrollment at a local public school because of their ethnicity and skin color. Thanks to funding from her farming income, the lawsuit Mendez v. Westminster in 1946 traveled to the federal district court and it was ruled that school districts were violating, quote-unquote, were violating Mexican-American citizens' rights to equal protection under the law and ruled in favor of Mendez. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed the ruling a year later. Mendez's fight is considered a stage setter for the Supreme Court case Brown v. Board of Education that ruled the desegregation of U.S. public schools was unconstitutional in 1954. Felicitas Mendez passed away in 1998, and beyond her landmark case, her legacy lives on through her family and a California school in East Los Angeles that is named for her and her husband. All this to say, Felicitas Mendez challenged the system, and she won. It's an amazing feat, especially when you consider what was uh, possible at that time. So talk about uh, a Latina, a Boricua that is fearless and powerful and badass. I mean, definitely someone that you should know. I know I only gave a little bit of a snippet into her, her background, her life and her accomplishment, but definitely go back in, um, research who this woman was because she played a pivotal role in the desegregation of schools. And that is a fact that we should never forget. 
Moving on to some Puerto Rico news, the Wall Street Journal reported this week that the Supreme Court agreed on Monday to consider reinstating a federal law denying disability benefits to residents of Puerto Rico. This is taking up an appeal filed by the Trump administration that President Biden had opposed as a candidate. The Biden administration has reversed or modified several legal positions Trump had pressed at the Supreme Court in cases ranging from a challenge to the Affordable Care Act to enforcement standards for minority voting rights. But it took no action on this Puerto Rico case. As of this recording, when pressed on this, the Justice Department declined to comment. The White House had no immediate comment. Neil Ware, president of Equally American, an advocacy group for residents of U.S. territories, was quoted in the article as saying, Absent the kind of shift DOJ, that's the Department of Justice, has made in other recent cases, this administration will in effect be arguing in favor of continued discrimination against the most vulnerable residents of Puerto Rico and other territories. So the issue here is something called Supplemental Security Income, or SSI. It's a program Congress added to Social Security in 1972 to assist low-income Americans who are older than 65 years old, blind, or disabled. It initially applied to residents of the 50 states and the District of Columbia. Congress later extended the program to the Northern Mariana Islands, but not to Puerto Rico or other U.S. territories, including American Samoa, Guam, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Currently, 8 million Americans participate in the program, receiving an average monthly benefit of $575, the government says. Congress left SSI's predecessor program, known as Aid to the Aged, Blind, and Disabled, intact in Puerto Rico. It provides a lower level of benefits, has stricter eligibility requirements than SSI, and requires a 25% match from the territorial government while allowing local officials a greater degree of control over the program. Lower courts ruled the exclusion unconstitutional. Upholding a federal judge in Puerto Rico, the first U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Boston last year found it irrational and arbitrary, quote-unquote, to exclude otherwise eligible individuals from SSI solely because they reside in the territory. The Trump administration appealed this and argued that the Constitution distinguished states from territories and that Supreme Court precedent permitted Congress to treat Puerto Rico disfavorably and argued that it was too costly, too costly, to include Puerto Ricans in the program. And it was rational to deny benefits to Puerto Rico because Puerto Ricans were exempted from paying several federal taxes. This is the Trump administration's argument. So to put this into context, there is already a huge disparity in assistance as it stands currently with this program, and it doesn't truly meet the reality of need in La Isla. In fact, according to data from the United States Government Accountability Office, if Puerto Rico were a state in 2011, the average monthly payment would have been $422 under SSI instead of the $74 through the existing program and around 354,000 residents rather than 37,500 would be eligible to receive financial assistance. Talk about a gap. So here's my question. Is it right to pick and choose which American citizens receive federal benefits based on whether or not the current administration likes the laws of the place those citizens reside? How could that be right or just? This is just another example of the inequitable relationship between the U.S. and Puerto Rico, and the Biden administration is only continuing the pattern of leaving Puerto Rico by the wayside as citizens on the mainland continue to benefit from gentrification and those same federal tax exemptions the Trump administration complained about while Puerto Ricans are expected to suffer in silence. This is extremely frustrating as just with the $15 minimum wage fight and the fight for student loan debt relief, the Biden administration can take up this fight. All it takes is the Justice Department asking the Supreme Court to dismiss the case at a future date. That's literally it. And people in Puerto Rico can receive much needed assistance. It's disappointing to not see this happen yet. If this doesn't happen, then I hope this administration has a bigger plan to create a program that has true parity of benefits for Boricuas on La Isla. It's the right thing to do, and people's lives depend on it. So, again, it's 
as simple as the DOJ saying, Supreme Court, don't worry about this case, dismiss it, and then people in Puerto Rico can continue receiving funds. Um, if there's a larger plan here, and I hope it means that Puerto Ricans are going to get more assistance instead of assistance being taken away. Speaking of the relationship between the United States and Puerto Rico, House Representative Darren Soto, who's a Democrat from Florida, and Representative Jennifer Gonzalez, Puerto Rico's non-voting member of Congress and a Republican, introduced new legislation on Tuesday to make Puerto Rico a state. NBC News reporter Nicole Acevedo wrote an article worth reading on this topic where she goes into the four things to know about the calls for Puerto Rico statehood. Now I'll reference parts of her reporting as we go deeper into this topic, but I highly recommend you give that a read if you want a quick little rundown. But uh, let's start with uh, Rep. Darren Soto. Here's what he had to say about the Puerto Rico Statehood Admissions Act. Today, it establishes a framework for admission, including a presidential proclamation upon its passage, a ratification vote, the election of U.S. senators and representatives, and the continuity of laws, government, and obligations. Rep. Darren Soto stated that this act will be a framework for admission, including a presidential proclamation upon its passage, a ratification vote, the election of U.S. senators and representatives, and the continuity of laws, government, and obligations. I don't believe this is the best path forward considering the way these past referendums have gone down, and it looks like other advocacy groups felt the same. According to NBC News, that same report from Nicola Acevedo, the statehood bill was met with opposition from four Puerto Rican advocacy groups this past Tuesday. They bought an ad in the New York Times calling out statehood supporters such as Puerto Rico Governor Pedro Pierluisi for their use of cherry-picked statistics, quote-unquote. They were quoted as saying, If you're only listening to the governor of Puerto Rico, you're not even getting half the story, the ad reads. True equity can only be achieved when Puerto Rico is free to decide its own destiny, armed with information, and a full understanding of the entire range of non-territorial political status possibilities available. The four groups, Vamos Puerto Rico, Boricuas Unidos in the Diaspora, Diaspora in Resistance, and Our Revolution Puerto Rico, argue in the ad that the bill that reps Nidia Velasquez and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, both Puerto Rican Democrats from New York, the bill that both of those representatives are seeking to reintroduce in the House, these four groups have said that option is a better one to resolve Puerto Rico's territorial status. Additionally, in a recent Washington Post opinion piece, friend of the show, Julio Ricardo Varela, wrote about recent Puerto Rico statehood efforts and why they stalled. I gotta say, he made some really good points too. You should read the article. It's titled, All the Reasons Puerto Rico Statehood Efforts Keep Stalling. For now, I'll share one point of his that I thought stood out. He wrote, quote unquote, Pierluisi and his allies like to compare their statehood campaign to the civil rights movement, but they don't seem to understand what people risked to expose the racism and cruelty of the state. People conducted acts of civil disobedience, and some even died for the noble cause of civil rights. Many Puerto Rican statehood proponents don't seem willing to sacrifice much, especially if it hurts their political standing, end quote. I thought this was a good point because after all these years of calling for statehood, what movement has there been? Politely pleading with the United States to act on Puerto Rico has never worked. A lot of these efforts seem more rooted in political theater than anything else, and political theater doesn't really work for the people. Organizing does. Puerto Ricans on the island lack full political rights. They live under conditions that would not be tolerated in any state. So where is the energy and mobilization for statehood? Because I really don't see it. And we know, we know Puerto Ricans will organize and mobilize for things they care about. The 2019 protests against Ricardo Rosselló are a perfect example of that. Julio put it well when he wrote, quote unquote, if the pro-statehood movement wants to achieve its goals, it should first connect its struggle to the broader fight for racial and social justice. So if you're wondering why we haven't seen a change after all these years, look no further than politicians who'd rather invest in political theater that goes nowhere but looks good than risk making some good trouble and taking a stand for what is best for their people. 
Rounding out our news for this episode, if you are a big basketball fan like I am, you'll appreciate this. I got some 04 Puerto Rican Olympic national team vibes when I read this last week, but the Puerto Rican men's national basketball team qualified for the 2022 FIBA America Cup tournament, beating both Mexico and the Bahamas in the qualifiers on the same day to advance. There will be a 12-team tournament in total, and that tournament will begin on September 11th of next year. While I'm on the topic of basketball, if you are indeed as big of a basketball fan or bigger than I am, or you just love seeing Puerto Ricans ball on the court, I mentioned the 04 Puerto Rican men's national team earlier, and I highly recommend you give the podcast La Brega a listen. It's a limited podcast series that shares stories of the Puerto Rican experience, and this week they dropped an episode retelling the historic run of Puerto Rico's team at the Olympics in Athens that year, where they beat the USA basketball dream team at that time 92 points to 73 points in one of the biggest upsets in Olympic history. Here's a clip from the episode. But in Puerto Rico, the stakes are just higher because Puerto Rico, despite being a U.S. colony, competes in international sporting events like the Olympics on its own, under its own flag, as if we were an independent country. Journalist Noel Algarín, who has covered sports in Puerto Rico for many years, put it this way. The only place where we can call ourselves sovereign is in sports. In sports... We get this opportunity to be Puerto Rico, the country from the Caribbean. We get to be someone. And then we get chances in a more symbolic way to face the country that owns you in some way. The defeat in the Olympic opener ended an unbeaten run of 24 matches by the USA since NBA professionals were allowed to compete in the Olympics in Barcelona back in 1992. I cannot overstate how big this win was for Puerto Rico. Listen to some of the names on the USA team. And for basketball fans, all these names are going to sound super familiar. If you are more of a casual fan, you'll definitely know at least one or two. I would imagine you'd know at least one on this list. So here were some of the big names that were on the team. Allen Iverson, Stephen Marbury, Dwayne Wade, Carmelo Anthony, LeBron James, Amari Stoudemire, and Tim Duncan. Needless to say, this was an incredible win, and I encourage y'all to go listen to that episode of La Brega after this episode, of course. But it's a great team over there uh, that working on that project. They're all Puerto Ricans. I know a few of them, um, but journalists, researchers, editors, producers, it's a good squad, and they're putting out some good content. So highly encourage you go listen to that podcast. But again, Go listen to it after you're done listening to this episode. Speaking of which, let's jump into our interview with Daniela Velasquez. Bienvenidos a todos. This is the Paseo Podcast. It is January 29th, but again, that doesn't really matter because it's a podcast. We're just happy you're listening to this uh, whenever, wherever you are, uh, whether that be wherever you're streaming your podcasts or on YouTube. Uh, we have a very special guest with us today. We have Daniela Velasquez. She is a senior public relations strategist at the PR firm Elasticity, a community advocate, and a proud Missourican. Daniela, welcome to the Paseo Podcast. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Oh, super um, happy to have you. Yeah, super excited to be here and just share my story about... Uh, you know, one Missouri, Kenya, a Missouri can living in the diaspora, the beautiful diaspora of the Midwest. Right on. Cool. Well, speaking of speaking of uh, your story and, and being here, I know we're going to get into a lot uh, of ground here, but uh, let's start off with what our audience should know about you. What should they know? Give us the lowdown. Um, it's sort of like growing up in St. Louis and being Puerto Rican. It's like I've been super exoticized and like, oh, what is that? Where are you from? Are you a citizen? What are those big bananas you eat? Mm. True story. Um, but, <laughs> but really like my parent, like my family story is, I mean, it's so common. Um, my, both my parents were born in PR. Uh, my mom was born in Aguadilla. My dad was born in Mocha. Um, and my mom moved to New York when she was three and my dad moved when he was 12 and that's where they met. Um, they're in their seventies. So it, it legit and how I explained it in St. Louis was like West side story. 
a little bit, it was that time. And that's also kind of how I have to explain it to St. Louisans. Oh, I've seen that movie. Okay, do you dance? Kind of, <laughs> not me, Allie's. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> um, yeah, and so my dad got a job with uh, Western Electric, which is AT&T back in the day. And they moved to St. Louis in 1969 when the arch was fresh and it was this gateway to you know, the West and my parents were like, let me get as far away from West Side Story in Brooklyn as we can into this American dream. And they moved to the far suburbs of St. Louis. And when I say that like people really didn't know like what Puerto Rico was, or I mean, you think they don't know what it is now, but St. Louis in the sixties and seventies, I mean, my parents got asked questions like, are you citizens? Do you know how to make tacos? Which my mom does, but they're kind of Puerto Rican tacos. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's how they ended up here. And so, you know, my first, two, I'm the youngest of four. First two siblings were born in New York. And then me and my other brother were born here. And like, I grew up in, you know, the essential quintessential American dream in a suburb of St. Louis called Baldwin, um, which fun fact, looked up the 1990 census records um, and there were 24 Puerto Ricans in Baldwin, 24. Okay, that's 24 more than I thought there were. <laughs> well, our house was six, so. Okay, like, oh, there you go. <laughs> like, so I kind of always felt that we were different, but when I looked up that stat, I was like, okay, no, that was real. We were yeah. a quarter of the population of Puerto Ricans <laughs> in, this, in this suburb where I grew up. Wow. Um, so, so you had, when we were talking about getting you on the show, you had mentioned your story of growing up Misericon was actually included in a book, and I have the title here, uh, Radical, uh, an Unapologetic Anthology by Women and Gender Nonconforming Storytellers of Color. Um, if you'd like our conversation with Daniela, definitely go check out that book. You can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it on Amazon. You had touched on a, a couple of things where you had said, you know, people asking you if you can dance, uh, do you eat bananas, um, you know, a lot of these little microaggressions that I think a lot of people listening um, are familiar with, have experienced. Um, but curious to hear from you, like growing up in Missouri, growing up in St. Louis, you know, do you have any do you have any stories or a story that you can share about the challenges you faced growing up in the state? Yeah, so it's funny because, so I, I was part of this book and a part of this, I'm going to do a little plug for Roots, Wounds, Words, which is this um, really great uh, writer's workshop and they have classes and they're for uh, BIPOC folks and changed my world, but it, it kind of forced me to like dig into some of my culture. And that's sort of what I've been diving into this, in this pandemic even more. Um, and just like really reflecting. Um, and so for, you know, People who don't know, um, St. Louis is a very, very black and white town. Um, literally, figuratively, um, some of the highest health disparities, racial disparities in health and income. And, um, you know, we are a case study in white flight. All this is reflected in St. Louis. So um, growing up, there's a very small Puerto Rican population. So it's about 5,000 in the whole metro area. I think the whole metro area is a couple million. Hispanics, Latinos, Latines, Latinx, <laughs> were about 4% of the overall region's population. And so living in St. Louis and growing up in St. Louis, it's really a matter of like, are you black and are you, or are you white? And if you're not one of those, I'm very confused about where you fit in into my you know, paradigm because I don't know anything else. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I've had moments where I'm fairly light skinned super fairly light-skinned in the middle of pandemic because I have not seen sun. <laughs> um, so it's always been a mix of like, depending on where I'm from, who sees my name, how dark I am at that moment. It's really like people's perceptions. Um, and so like growing up, it was always like this, like, you know, in the summers, you know, I remember like, I've been called racial slurs, like only because people don't know what I am. <laughs> Um, but also, you know, what I wrote about in the essay was there is this moment I have when I was really young. I was actually really young being kindergarten. And, you know, my name is Daniela. Um, and there is no silent A that exists in the English language. 
Um, and I remember thinking, I remember getting my name on the board, always a communicator. So I was always talking in class <laughs> <laughs> and she had misspelled my name and she'd spelled it with two L's. And I was like, Hey, kindergarten teacher, that's not my name. Like, I don't know whose name you're writing for. And, uh, she like went back to her grade book, like looked it up and then like erased it and then like, you know, spelled it right. And I just had this moment of like shame. And I remember growing up so many times thinking, correcting people about my name. I mean, not even getting to my last name, my first name. Um, and now I think it's funny and I've, and I've had to unpack it, but also in the essay, I talk about this moment where I ran for, I don't know, like student council something president in nope. seventh grade. And I was precocious and, you know, probably too punny for my own good. And so my slogan was vote for the name you can't pronounce. <laughs> Which I thought, I don't see, get people's I thought, attention. <laughs> I still think it's genius. Yeah. I feel like the white kids and the vanilla conservative so I mean they did not get it I did not win oh, boo. <laughs> but, but looking back at it I was like oh yeah that probably says a lot about like assimilation and how I, I perceive myself so just I mean constant things like you know all the examples I've, I've named were like true stories like you know wasn't your dad a citizen does he have a green card mm -hmm. you know and I and just you know constantly being like well I don't fit in necessarily um you know we're not black and we're not white and in in st louis you know that often leads to a to a to some white privilege i mean legitimately because um people don't know what you are so if you're not black then you're white even though that totally negates the whole history of puerto rico <laughs> yeah. So really sorry you didn't win your campaign um, in school. Uh, you know, that that that's definitely a hit, a hit. Um, but understandable if, you know, you're going to school with a lot of white people, they're probably going to want to have somebody in power that looks like them. Um, that's a generalization. But if history has told us anything, that's most likely true. <laughs> Seventh grade, yes. <laughs> Um, but, uh, you know, I am curious, you mentioned looking up the census records when you grew up in, in St. Louis and that there was 24 Boricuas and that your family accounted for a quarter of that. Um, what about now? Like what's the Puerto Rican community like now where you live? Has it, has it, has it grown? Do you feel like it's substantial enough for, you know, you kind of have people that share that same identity and culture as you, um, or is it still kind of minimal? So it's funny. I just want to bring up a story because you asked oh, and we're talking about like assimilation is that, you know, I think it's part of being in the diaspora and not being in places where you're taught your history, you have access to your history or mm -hmm. you're not taught your history. Yeah. And I remember, you know, I'd spell my last name and I'd be like, you know, my last, you know, Velasquez, you know, like easy, get it? It's not easy to spell. Wah, wah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and like, then I got older and I was like, why do I have to acquiesce to this? Why am I trying to make people comfortable? Like, mm -hmm. you should know how to spell my name. Again, obsessed with the name thing. Now, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, comparatively for people listening, you know, here in, in Illinois, you know, we have over 200 or 201,000 Boricuas. Now, that's pales in comparison to New York, which is like over a million. Um, I think Florida is like uh, nipping at New York's heels. Like they're over a million as well. So they might end up becoming the mecca of uh, Boricuas here in um, the Puerto Rican community here in the United States. But looking at Missouri's numbers, you're talking about, I want to say like 15,000, a little over 15,000 Boricuas that live. I mean, as of like the most recent data we've seen over the past few years. I mean, that's right. funny. It was like, that's, as we would say in St. Louis, everybody. That's mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you think, yeah, like you think of the geography there. I mean, yeah, that's throughout the whole freaking state. So um, it's, it's a, it's a pretty substantial number, but you know, nothing on the levels of, you know, like what we see in Florida, New York. Um, I mean, even California. <laughs> We're going to take a quick pause for the cause, pero no se muevan, porque when we come back, we're going to share more of our conversation with Daniela. Stay with us. We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. 
When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based, grassroots, educational, health, and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-E-O-P-O-D at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. Let's talk about your work in public relations. So right now you're working for Elasticity. I do want you to tell us a little bit about what that firm is all about, what they do. But first, I wanted to just get a sense from you, like being a Boricua in Missouri, in St. Louis, you know, what drew you to public relations? Why, why the magical world of, of communications? I've always been a storyteller. Back when I was a kid, I wanted to be either a roller skating rock star or journalist or one of those activists on like Greenpeace's, like I want to like hang off the ship of like Greenpeace. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The signs on the little raft. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was yeah. like totally. Um, and that's why I went into journalism. And, you know, I wanted to, as idealistic as it is, make the world a better place. And then I found myself having left journalism back in St. Louis, that there was a path that was like communications and advocacy. Um, and so when I moved back here, I started my own communication shop sort of accidentally. Um, and I was a, um, a staffer, a staff consultant for the Ferguson commission. Cause I moved right. <laughs> I moved into St. Louis, um, in May of 2014. And of course, Michael Brown was killed in August, did some work, did some civic engagement work for the commission did some consulting work for a group called the Mosaic Project, which part of the Economic Development Partnership here in St. Louis that wanted to make St. Louis the fastest growing place for foreign born people by 2020. That's a mouthful, but that's what their slogan uh, was and their goal was. Um, And so I found myself in this place, uh, in this kind of intersection of how can I build that bridge, right? Like, because it's, and I wish I could say it better in Spanish. I'm hoping saying it right. The ni, ni de aquí, ni de allá. Mm-hmm. Like never really fitting in anywhere. Yeah. Not here, not there. And so, you know, as personally kind of, um, as personally, I don't want to say daunting, but as personal, personally trying as that may be, it has also served me well in, an, in a professional capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, just because... I have empathy. I know the other. I'm often the other. I can relate to the other. You know, in a city that's black and white, you know, I'm let's let's be honest here. I'm light enough to be appeasing and not scary to white people, um, but I'm also not white, and so you know, I don't have a brown past. But you know, there is some sort of openness to that because I'm not white, right? And if you look at the history of Puerto Rico and oppression, like I'm not. Um, but I also understand what it's like being the other. So um, I've been able to, I did that work for the ACLU of Missouri for about three years as their director of communications, and then came on to Elasticity, which is a full service digital PR firm. We do it all from paid media to public relations to you know ads, the whole thing. Um, but I've really been able to, you know, I feel like I build my, I've built my career on what I'm interested in, right? Because I know it's like, how can I help people understand as somebody who honestly feels un- misunderstood most of the time? <laughs> like how can I, I feel like it's given me, I've been able to 
ask those questions and like even just see the frustration and be able to have empathy in a way that helps move things forward and like ask questions that people don't always ask or just being that squeaky wheel like hey that doesn't make sense hey did you think about are we you know representing the population we're trying to serve Mm -hmm. um you know and so um even at a public relations firm or an agency um i have you know i i manage uh a pretty broad uh set of accounts that are between you know corporate to government to I have um, a regional theater <laughs> um, and, you know, I find myself asking those same questions about equity, about inclusion, about diversity, about representation, about, you know, thinking about people who are often overlooked all the time. Um, and so why it's a little bit of a weave between the things I've done, I feel like the core is always the same. Like it's still, you know, from one storyteller to another, like if I can make you human and I can get you not see me as the other, then maybe I can get you to love my thy neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself um, and see things differently and maybe do things differently. So for people listening, I'm just thinking of like maybe aspiring PR pros, you know, or people that are thinking about, oh, maybe is the agency life for me? Is the communications world for me? Like, can you give us a little insight into just generally what is like the day to day? What's it like working at a PR firm? So I was a journalist before this, and that is important, but not always necessary. But being in an agency is the most like being in a newsroom in my professional career that I've been. Everybody's a little crazy. Everybody's a little creative. <laughs> and no day is ever the same. And it is not. <laughs> Uncommon for clients to call you with slightly unreasonable requests mm-hmm. at slightly unreasonable hours. <laughs> and that's the charm, right? Like I worked in straight up corporate and I thought by my skill set that it was a good fit. And it wasn't because I like the variety. I like the challenge of, you know, as we, as you mentioned, or, and as I said, like I have, non, you know, I deal with nonprofit clients, I deal with for-profit clients. I deal with government clients um, and it's a challenge and an intellectual challenge to think of like, how can I help them? Mm-hmm. And it changes. Uh, and I, and I love that. Um, and I also think too, doing PR, <laughs> um, you know, I want to see, and you know, part of what I believe in and sort of what has been foisted upon me, but I am learning to embrace is, you know, being being just doing what I do and being seen for who I am because it helps other people see that they can do it too right and like I'll never forget this is a journalist example um and a microaggression but I would have remember when I was in Florida and I was working at the newspaper I had a story in my name like I had my byline and some commenter was like oh Daniela Velasquez, she must be part of this affirmative action program. And it's really great that, you know, her, you know, she speaks English so well. And I'm like, bitch, what? English is my first language. Two, I have a professional degree in journalism. Like, of course I speak, like, of course I have a command of the language. And like, I know what I'm doing. I didn't say all that in the comments. Um, but you know, just by the fact that that happens, you know, that there are, it's like, I can, you know, I can go and I have to take my full self wherever I go. Like that is, you know, whether it's obligation, duty, love, it's kind of all of the above. Um, you know, that doesn't stop when I walk into a room. Right. And I know like as a woman, as a woman of color, all those things, like it is, you know, I know that to some degree, as much as I want to ignore it, I know that I'm also walking into like stereotypes and like, I've, I've got to be, I've got to like slay them at every moment I get. Cause I mean, that's just the reality. And so, but being able to be that for other people and being able to just be like myself and also being imperfect, but also being like, big hair and bright colors wherever I go in. Seeing the level of organizing that that is a multi-year 
um, effort to, to get Georgia to actually flip blue. So to have like two senators from Georgia, huge deal. Who would have thought that would be possible? So look, just for people listening, like to give context, like utilizing something like a PAC can really make or break um, the way a not only uh, statewide office uh, who sits in a position in a statewide or at the federal level for a state, but also in those smaller local elections. Like uh, those make a big difference. Um, how in the heck you got into political activism fascinates me because I love politics. Um, I don't like the stickiness of it. I like seeing politics actually work and government actually work. Um, but like, tell us a little bit about your story. Like, I, I know you, you, you've already told us a bunch, but of all the things to get involved in, like a PAC does demand a lot of time and a lot of organizing. You know, where do you find the time for that? Why did you want to get involved in something like a political action committee? Yeah, I mean, so part of, you know, part of my path was before I, I, I came to the agency, I was, at, I was the director of communications at the ACLU of Missouri. Um, feel like you can't really get more political and or progressive than the ACLU. ACLU is dope. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I recently, I'm about, I'm ending this uh, fellowship called Chisholm's Chair. It's uh, part of a, named after Shirley Chisholm. It's part of a group uh, called We Power here in St. Louis. And the goal is to basically groom Black and Latinx women for, you know, public office. Um, so obviously, like, I, you know, you can take the politics out. I don't know. I'm still a junkie. Still love it. Still want to see the change. Mm. and still want to see how I can fit into it. So um, really, you know, Vos was is just kind of a natural extension of that. Like, I feel like that building bridge perspective has something to offer both my community and, and my people. As you know, in like PR and as in politics, you know, money matters. Um, following the money matters. Money helps you be able to tell stories, hopefully not in Cambridge Analytica kind of way. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it's it's important, I think, to know, like, if you're going to be in the game, know how the game is played, right? And so for me, like, getting involved with the pack and getting involved with, you know, a group of Latinos that want to see representation across Missouri and understand the constraints of the political system, but also have the heart and the vision to see something else is something I want to be a part of. For any like people of color that are aspiring to get into the communications world or even currently practicing public relations, advertising, marketing, you know, is there any advice that you have for people of color who want to get into the communications world? Like, what are some things they should keep in mind? Are there any things they should work on? Like any words of wisdom that you have for those people? You know, part of it I want to recognize, like, microaggressions, racism, sexism, it is real. Mm -hmm. And chances are, if you think you're experiencing it, you probably are. Yeah. <laughs> Even though your boss may tell you that you're not. <laughs> um, and I feel like it's just, this is a space to acknowledge that. I don't think, you know, I don't want to deter people um, either. I think that there is that, you know, again, it's finding the things that make you shine, that make your heart shine. And I know that's like cheesy and hippy dippy and like whatever. Um, but I think that if you move from a place of values, it will reflect in your work. So if you're, you know, we need more people, BIPOC people telling our stories. We need more people saying, hey, that ad based on a cultural stereotype probably not a good move. And certainly we need more people of those in, in places of power. So back to Shirley Chisholm and your folding chair. You know, part of it is moving past the point of representation into the in, and into the place of making, of decision-making and having that power. And so I think continually acknowledging that you're not crazy, these things are happening, not saying that they always happen, but they do. Um, but also like if you leave from a place of courage and strength and love for the things that you do, the industry needs that. We started a multicultural practice at Elasticity that we've called Cultural um, and it's really like a multicultural marketing firm. Um, but the fact is it's something like people of color make up a majority, you know, more than 50 or 60% of the population and only 6% of advertising spend 
is marketed toward people of color. So obviously, like right out the gate, you're starting off with with that, right? So so the gatekeepers, and the same thing happened in news, they don't understand, or they're scared, or they don't know how to reach people. They're not putting the money there, right? So if we're thinking about equity, and we're thinking about equity in different industries, what does that look like? In PR and advertising, you know, 60% should be a whole lot closer to 60%, mm-hmm. right? And so what does that tell you about who's in power and who's making the decisions, who's making the budgets? And so this is probably not the question of why should you join? Because <laughs> now you're probably like, maybe I should take a different career path. But I think the thing is there's opportunity there and you know, being equitable goes across industries, right? And it, and it, and it, and it goes across like whose name you have on your boards. It, it really is, what are we doing or what are we not doing? And so like there is a compelling, more than compelling argument. I can give you the data mm-hmm. and you see it all over the place. You see it in advertising. You see it in these, these, these intersects of like, I think about environmental racism and environmentalism and like how environmentalism has always been like a very white thing, right? Mm-hmm. And these organizations, but who's really getting affected by like, you know, um, by pollution and, you know, dirty air, it's people of color, right? And so like to say that, you know, that environmentalism, because they don't feel like because the people have been involved, haven't figured out a way to bring the other people in and the people that are most affected doesn't mean that it's not, right? So I feel like, you know, if anything, it'd be, there's a huge opportunity for people who care. And there's a big opportunity for people who wanna make a difference. And there's a big opportunity for people to tell their story. And I feel like the world, has changed. It is changing, but it has changed. And I feel like between, you know, 2016 and 2021, that we reached a tipping point where we can't return. You know, what black people in this country have always known about racism, the rest of the world is learning too, right? And even about PR, you know, Maria, it's like, to explain Maria, you have to explain the Jones Act, right? And you have to explain colonization and you have to explain what a territory protectorate, what anything you want a, a colony by any other name looks like, mm-hmm. right? And so we're at the point where there's a hunger for the truth and there's a lack of investment in the truth and there are people who need to be there to help tell the truth. And I think that goes for much as much as PR as it does for journalism because the world has already shifted so now we just have to be in those places to catch up now here's the this is like going to be tough here these are the rapid fire questions i told you we asked the hardest of hardest hitting questions here on the bus out podcast here we go first question what is your favorite type of music to dance to and i know you said you're taking plena classes so you know no no bias no bias but what is your favorite type of music to dance to you know i hate to sound like totally like stereotypical but i love those really fast merengues like okay. those merengues, like you can't like yeah. you're trying to do is this a booty dance is this a merengue? <laughs> my knees are hurting i'm too young for this but those are my favorite Next question. I asked this to, I mentioned her earlier in our conversation, Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez. I asked her this, um, but for the Chicago area. So this is going to be for you in the St. Louis area. And I know you said there's not a lot of Puerto Ricans, but what is your favorite Puerto Rican restaurant to eat at in St. Louis, if it exists? That's mom's house because it doesn't exist. <laughs> uh, mom's cooking is the best, though. Mom's cooking is the best. Although there is one Puerto Rican restaurant that Aura is not. Puerto Rican, but they did make some yeah, really good. Well, I know I don't want to. I don't want to snack talk. Come on. Oh. But I'm trying to like. Yes. Okay. But it's good. The mofongo was good. <laughs> we'll leave it there. <laughs> okay. Last question. This is a new segment. We've asked this a few times um, in a few interviews, recent interviews on the Paseo podcast. Um, but we're asking people like, what what is something that you are obsessed with, like? Something that you're reading, watching, uh, listening to, you know, if it deals, if it's connected to Puerto Rican culture, awesome, but it doesn't have to be, you know, as Puerto Ricanos, we don't, we can love all things from anywhere. Um, But like, what are some things you're obsessed with right now? Totally into novellas, Um, working on my Spanish on Rosetta Stone. And then 
Um, upping my yoga since I'm not powerlifting and I'm trying not to indulge my sweater body. I, <laughs> I have re I'm <laughs> I mean, it's hard not to. Um, I've reignited my yoga practice and Puerto Rican this. Um, I've actually started cooking some uh, like traditional recipes. And I will tell you, I feel like the spirit of my ancestors are with me in the kitchen. But I love, as modern as I like things, I love Ekibo. Mm. And there is nothing better than like the smell of like garlic and olive oil and salt, yeah. you know, with the mortar and pestle. Um, I've made flan twice in the past like month, month and a half. Um, I made pasta alone. Uh, how can people keep up with you? Social media, websites, give us all the things. How can they keep up with you? All right, so you can check out Vos at voskc.org. Um, you can check out, um, my website is daniellavelasquez.com. Um, my email address is on there. I'm on Instagram, vdaniellavv, uh, and Twitter, vdaniellav. Um, and on Facebook, it's Daniella Velasquez. Um, so all the things, not on TikTok. <laughs> Thank goodness. Maybe I will with the bomba plan. Yeah, um, why not? <laughs> it's been wonderful. That's a, <laughs> it's been a lot of fun doing that. And yeah, I mean, on the internet and i um, super excited to keep connecting with people. This has been awesome and way surpassed my Twitter dreams. <laughs> I'm serious. Like to be able to reconnect with people like through the diaspora and to, you know, I think, you know, always, never feeling like I belonged anywhere, but belonging everywhere and then realizing I'm not alone and that there are other people who have been, you know, looking for themselves in the same way that I have been and to reconnect over that is really powerful and also like really empowering. Well, I can think of no better way than the end of the podcast with that. I mean, Daniela Velasquez, thank you so much for spending time with us on the Paseo podcast. Appreciated having you. Likewise, it's been great. Thanks to Daniela Velasquez for being on the show today. As a reminder, you can watch our interview with her on our YouTube channel this Monday. Just type in Paseo Podcast and we'll pop right up. Stay tuned next week. Who our guest will be is TBD at the moment, but we've got so many great interviews coming up, it's hard to choose which to share first. I guess we'll leave that as a little surprise for next week. As always, if you want to pitch a story, nominate yourself or someone else for an interview, or share a news story you'd like us to discuss on the show, visit our website, baseomedia.org, to do just that. See you next week. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, connect with us by visiting our website, baseomedia.org, emailing us at baseopodcast at gmail.com, and following us at baseopodcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, we love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode, and see you next week. Cuídate.